Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. Hi. How's it going? We got our first flurries today. Of course, by the time you we post this one, it'll probably be spring, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm enjoying the weather. <laughs> good. That's good. So we're going to talk about um, a few different topics. Um, the So I'll start with one article that I thought was interesting. And this is entitled Increased Exclusivity of Breastfeeding Associated with Reduced Gut Inflammation in Infants. And this was a study that was done in South Africa. The main authors were Ashia Moodley Govinder, Helen Mulal, and Jennifer Stauber. So this article is about how breastfeeding affects the development of the gut in infants. And it specifically is looking at a couple markers of inflammation. Uh, in relation to the amount of breast milk that the babies are taking in. So you and I in past podcasts have talked about how breast milk promotes the growth of uh, bifidobacterium, which we know now contributes to a healthier immune response in infants to different illnesses. And it also is associated with a reduced incidence of diarrhea and allergies in breastfed babies as, to, as opposed to the bacteria that's developed in formula-fed babies. So this study decided to look at the effects of exclusive breastfeeding on gut inflammatory markers. So not just looking at the microbiome, but also looking at some markers of inflammation uh, that are right now used in research, but not clinically. Like there are, you know, I think the only marker of inflammation that we use clinically is the calprotectin Mm -hmm. in stool and and also leukocytes. And they didn't look at those um, because I, I don't think that they thought they were as specific as the markers that are used in this study. So anyway, what was interesting about this study is that they looked at 24 mother-baby dyads um, who are from a community called Cato Manor, which is outside of Durban in South Africa. And this is a very disadvantaged population with high unemployment, poor sanitation, and generally inadequate nutrition. Um, so there are these you know, babies who are very challenged um, and, and looking at the effect of exclusivity in terms of breastfeeding, um, you probably can, can see more differences than, you know, perhaps than in communities like ours. Um, so half the infants, interestingly, were born to HIV-infected mothers, and the mothers were all receiving antiretroviral therapy, and the infants also did too. They received anti- antiviral therapy for the first six weeks. And the DNA testing on those infants showed that none of them actually had HIV. And then the other half, yeah, which is good. Yeah, the other half of the infants were not exposed to HIV. And that's really all they talk about with the HIV thing. And I think that was important because, um, you know, if babies have HIV, that's going to be such an important factor in terms of the study. So um, what the other thing that's really interesting about the study is that they measured the amount of breast milk intake rather than relying on the maternal recall of breastfeeding exclusivity. 
Um, the author states that um, that maternal recall has been found to be overreported in some studies. So instead, what they did is they labeled the breast milk with deuterium um, by giving moms deuterium, which is a radioactive element, and then they measured the saliva levels in the baby to see what percent of their total body fluid is from breast milk versus other sources. So they could look at the amount of deuterium in the saliva. So yeah, I guess it's been done in some other studies too. It's just more accurate. So um, basically in measuring the amount of breast milk in these infants, they found that breast milk intake was about 75 to 100% of total intake. And they measured two markers of gut inflammation um, from stool. One was uh, called interleukin-8, and the other was something called S100 calcium binding protein A8, which I've never heard of. They found that the, that the levels of these markers were extremely low in babies who were 100% breastfed, and the markers were higher in babies who took less breast milk in a very consistent dose response manner. And they didn't find any relationship between these inflammatory markers and other variables, such as uh, their uh, degree of hygiene, uh, HIV exposure, their delivery mode, uh, their age, their gender, or their birth weight. Um, so, um, so in general, I think that this study just adds that biologic plausibility. You know, so when we talk about, oh, you know, babies have healthier guts when they're breastfeeding, um, having that scientific backup to say, well, here's a reason why. Look at these inflammatory markers. It's showing that there truly is less inflammation um, with this sort of study um, is really important um, to support our statements about breastfeeding, keeping the gut healthy. That is a really cool study. Yeah. I think that um, we still need to know exactly what this means because when we do talk about there being less gut infl in inflammation, does that really mean that it translates into less um, less disease when these kids are older, like Crohn's disease and all sorts of colitis, or the fact that when they're older, they won't have as many gut infections, you know, with um, things like, you know, E. coli and things like that. So, sure, whether it's yeah. long-lasting or, or if it's just that, as we know, infants who are breastfed um, have less diarrhea and less um, risk of mortality. Right, exactly. Yeah, so I thought that was good. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so I wanted to talk to talk about two related studies which were um, published back-to-back -back in the November issue of Breastfeeding Medicine. And they were um, both by Sheila Garrity and Sarah Keim et al. Um, and one of them was titled Tobacco Metabolites and Caffeine in Human Milk Purchased Via the Internet and the other Drugs of Abuse in Human Milk Purchased Via the Internet. And these are sort of follow-up studies on some work that this group out of um, Cincinnati Children's Center for Breastfeeding Medicine has been doing for several years. I heard them talk about um, sort of the initiation of this study, I think, two years ago at the ABM conference, um, and really thought it was a very interesting idea for their study. So initially... Um, over the past few years, they had noted that there was sort of um, sale of breast milk over the internet, and so they decided to purchase human milk over the internet and to study the milk that they got. And so you can look in um, some of their earlier work. They started in 2012. I think it was published in um, 
2014, maybe 2013 and 14, talking a lot about how they went about doing this. And um, they used a website which had been set up for the purpose of connecting buyers and sellers of milk. And um, when people were offering to sell, they um, communicated with them without really giving details of what they wanted the milk for, but not misrepresenting what they were using it for either. Um, And then arranged to have that shipped to a P.O. box, which was um, in no way identified to be, you know, having to do with the university or study. Um, And then sort of paying anonymously for that milk. And they purchased um, 102 samples of human milk over the internet. In the, in the study that, um, well, first let me say one other thing, which was of the milk that they received, um, almost half of it, 45% of the samples arrived at um, a temperature greater than what is acceptable um, for refrigeration, which is about 4 degrees Celsius or 40 Fahrenheit. And they found about 74% were contaminated with high counts of um, pathogenic bacteria. Um, they also found that 10% of the samples were contaminated with quantities of um, bovine DNA that suggested that it was greater than incidental contamination. And so all of those things in the original studies um, sort of just made me very wary. This, like, really, buyer beware what you're going to get um, if you think you're buying breast milk over the Internet. Yeah, and I think that that's the key thing is that it was purchased because um, it would be interesting to see if it if you would have that same amount of bovine protein in milk that was not purchased. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a lot of ways that people are exchanging milk these days. You and I have talked about some of those in the past. And I think as a growth of the fact that, um, you know, people have recognized that um, breast milk is the optimal Um, nutrition for infants and not every mother can breastfeed or has adequate supply of her own milk families are seeking alternative sources for human milk and you know there are milk banks there are milk sharing programs that are regulated there are people who are exchanging milk um, for free and then this is sort of the far end of the spectrum where people are just anonymously buying and selling um, over the internet without any real oversight yeah Um, And so in this um, first study that had to do with um, tobacco and caffeine, they found that um, the sort of the the form that people used to write about the milk they were selling was um, didn't necessarily have um, a lot of requirements for people to list various things. And so sometimes things were volunteered and sometimes they were not. There were no sellers that indicated smoking in their advertisement, um, but they found that 58% had detectable um, levels of nicotine or its metabolites. And four samples, uh, 4%, which was four samples, had nicotine um, levels high enough to indicate active smoking. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came to caffeine, 12% of the sellers said in their ads that they specifically limit um, 4% or avoid 8% um, caffeine entirely. 5% of the samples had caffeine levels consistent with consuming one cup of coffee um, within two hours prior to milk expression. Mm. And detectable amounts of caffeine were found in 97% of the samples. Well, 
Well, which, women do like their chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think caffeine right. is um, pretty ubiquitous yeah. in our society. And, and I, I think that for most people, caffeine, you know, is not of great concern. I, I know I had one friend when I was a new mom who used to label her pumped milk at work caffeinated and decaf. <laughs> swore that her baby would not sleep if she gave her the caffeinated milk at night. And I think some babies are more sensitive. Certainly we know that babies metabolize caffeine much more slowly than adults. So it has a longer half-life for them. It can build up in their systems. Um, but I don't think that it's um, considered to be dangerous. In fact, we use caffeine as a medicine in the NICU um, right. for preemies at times. On the other hand, um, the other study which was paired with this had to do with drugs of abuse in human milk. And after reading the one about the caffeine, I was a little anxious to read this study. Um, but actually, the good news is that of the 102 um, samples that were tested for 13 common classes of drugs of abuse, um, no samples tested positive for any of the selected drugs of interest. Ooh, that's good to know. That's good. Um, and, you know, the authors do say that although they did not detect any drugs, the sample was too small um, to detect less commonly used drugs or to provide a really narrow confidence interval around a prevalence estimate, you know, in a greater um, sample size of milk. Um, they said that you know, 71% of the sellers did state in their advertisement that they abstained from some types of drugs, prescription or illicit, um, and 29% said nothing. So I think, you know, after reading the first article, I would still sort of stick to the the idea that you need to be cautious. And um, certainly, I've had a lot of patients who have milk shared sort of in a more personal, you know, in their local area with somebody they knew. And I, I feel a lot more comfortable recommending that than buying milk over the internet. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, buying milk is actually, you know, happening, like, in the community, too. So uh, I had a patient recently who knows she had a history of breast reduction, went, had difficulty with her milk supply with her first, knew that she was going to have difficulty with her second. So um, she, her husband's, co-worker's wife had a lot of extra milk and they decided to do a deal where she sold it to my patient Sheesh. and so she spent a thousand dollars on a thousand ounces of milk and then she, after she did that she called me and she said do you think that was okay and I sort of like disclosed hey you know that that I, I think ethically it's safer to to not purchase the milk um and so we talked about the risk of diluting the milk or the risk of, you know, adding cow's milk to it in order mm -hmm. to sell it. And um, I suggested that she just ask her point blank, you know, is it possible that you would have done that? Because, uh, you know, what else are you going to do? How else, you know, you're not going to throw out $1,000 worth of milk. You want to be yeah, able to and there isn't person. really a, a way for um, patients test to it. test it. No, you can't really test it. So I, th so I asked her just to, you know, say, look, I need to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation my doctor asked that I ask you this. I'm not particularly worried, but I just need to know. Um, yeah. I need to know, do you have HIV? I need to know. So I gave her a list of things, and I said, you know, print it. Show, you know, I, so we did it through my chart on Epic so that she could see, yeah. you know, that she could print, you know, what I actually said and take it to uh, the, the donor. Um, but I think that, um, you know, I, I'm very uh, concerned about the, per, you know, purchasing 
Um, and in this study, Sheila Garrity, I remember her talking about her work, and one of the issues with the study that makes it not quite as generalizable is that they only asked to purchase small quantities, mm-hmm. and she felt like that kind of tipped a lot of donors um, who thought, oh, gosh, you know, this might be like police or FBI or a researcher who might track me and then, you know, and, you know, is investigating Not everybody milk. sent the milk after they had discussed it. Yeah, I remember that Exactly. Part. Yeah. So then these might be the more honest people, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, I think, I think it was really important that, that she and her group did this study um, and it raised, it, it raised awareness definitely in the media so that was that was good for sure yeah Yeah. um i think and we could talk about this a little bit more but i think one of the concerns is that uh, women who can't breastfeed want breast milk for their babies and uh, do and i don't advocate that we say well gosh if it's not your milk you need to get formula formula safer than donor milk i do believe that donor milk has a role but i think it needs to be shared safely and maybe we, I think we talked about this before when we talked about developing a donor milk bank that in Madison we have the Mother's Milk Alliance, which is a sharing, a community bank of sharing uh, milk without pasteurization. But although we give information on how to pasteurize, but mothers are screened and brought to our neutral bank and then uh, recipients are, they apply to receive the milk and it's very low cost. It's basically the cost of um a donation of money in order to cover the cost of the testing for the donor. Um, but it has been super successful. I've seen families just really thrive with this model. And so we, so it can be, so sharing can be done safely. I really feel strongly about that, but this over the internet, not knowing who the other person is, no screening purchasing, I think is uh, not yeah. safe. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, so, Karen, anything else to say about um, uh, Dr. Garrity's work with um, with purchasing donor milk? No, I think that's it. What's your other article? So, my other article is entitled Lactation and Progression to Type 2 Diabetes After Gestational Diabetes, which is a prospective cohort study uh, done uh, at Kaiser Permanente in California. The lead uh, authors were Erica Gunderson, Shanta Hurston, and Zion Ning. So the authors report that 5 to 9% of pregnancies are affected by gestational diabetes in the United States, and these women have a seven-fold higher risk for type 2 diabetes as they uh, become older. So we know that lactation improves uh, glucose and lipid metabolism and increases our body to insulin sensitivity, with favorable metabolic effects that persist after weaning. Um, so, uh, so the important thing is that we want to see whether or not breastfeeding is actually going to reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes um, for uh, years down the road. So they feel that prior to this study, the evidence for lactation preventing type 2 bi- diabetes was weak. Um, I think that many of us have assumed that that's the case, that it does reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes. 
um, but they want to strengthen that connection by doing this study. So this study has an acronym called SWIFT, which stands for the study of women, infant feeding, and type 2 diabetes after gestational uh, diabetes and pregnancy. I love acronyms because people we can... just love studies with acronyms. Yeah, well, because, you know, then people remember, like everyone remembers the darling study, you know, about um, delayed. Sadly, I do not. Oh, you don't. Well, that's my generation. <laughs> that's before. That's when you were a resident or a medical student. Um, but, you know, those acronyms I think are really good for uh, lactation because. It highlights them, and um, we start to talk about them, um, and then that gets people who are in positions of like not a lot of um, authority, like in medical groups or, or something, to say, well, you know, in the SWIFT study, blah, blah blah, and then the providers are like, whoa, go, you know, you you know what you're talking about. So anyway, that's hysterical. Yeah. So in this study, um, a thousand thirty-five women were diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Um, and these women were enrolled from August of 2008 to, to December of 2011, and they all received their care at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. So women who were eligible to be in this study included those who had births um, over 35 weeks, they had to speak English or Spanish, um, they had to be healthy, and could not have diabetes before they became pregnant. So they recorded how much formula or other supplementation that they gave over time, and after six weeks, they were either categorized as being exclusive breastfeeders, mostly, breast, mostly breastfeeding, mixed feeding, mostly formula, or exclusively formula. So everyone had a baseline two-hour glucose tolerance test at two-hour glucose tolerance test at six weeks. And if it was abnormal, it was repeated. And if it and if it looked abnormal, then they were considered to have diabetes, and they were not included in the study. Um, because they wanted only women who resolve their diabetes immediately postpartum to and then see what happens in the next couple of years with gestational diabetes. Um, and then they measured everyone's body mass index and their waist circumferences. They looked at their diet. They looked at their physical activity and history of depression. This is so interesting because when you were describing the study initially and you said and to see if they develop diabetes later in life, I was imagining many years later, but of course, you know, it would take a really long time to do that study. Yeah, well, that's one of the, we'll talk about that. That's one of the um, criticisms of the study is that they only followed the um, mothers for two years after they had gestational diabetes. Mm. But interestingly, even in those two years, they found that um, there were 3.95 cases of diabetes um, among a thousand, uh, among what would be considered a thousand person months. So looking at the number of people times the number of months that they follow them, which is 24 months, um, for exclusive lactation. So among those who exclusively lactated, they found 3.95 cases of diabetes versus 8.79 cases for women who were exclusive formula feeders. So this amounted to basically somewhere between a 36 to 57% relative risk reduction in the two-year diabetes incidence with um, higher intensity lactation, which was only measured at six to nine weeks postpartum. Um, so, um, and then for some women, you know, they had longer lactation, but I mean, they only were measuring at six to nine weeks, which is pretty amazing. And, yeah. this, and this outcome was independent of obesity, 
um, their degree of gestational glucose tolerance, you know, whether or not they were like diet controlled versus insulin, um, and their um, and perinatal outcomes hmm. that can delay lactogenesis. So, um, did you know, they comment on whether or not these were were they all prime ups, or did they discuss whether or not they had had previous uh, gestational diabetes? They um, did not. I did not see that in there. there. There may have been information, but I could not find any information yeah. about that. In the, there. That and the idea of whether or not they had previously breastfed for a number of months because, you know, often when they're citing various um, outcomes for moms like decreased blood pressures, they talk about, you know, the lifetime number of months that you've breastfed and that effect. Oh, right. Yeah, no, they didn't look at that. They didn't look at total number. They just looked at um, this particular pregnancy exactly yeah um and they said that the postpartum weight change only partially was associated with the the this association between lactation and um onset of type 2 diabetes um so there wasn't a really strong correlation it really had mostly to do with lactation itself and not about weight loss um and the good news about this study too is it was pretty ethnically diverse whereas a lot of the work that's done um, with um, like obesity and um, delay on lactation, um, diabetes tends to be pretty much Caucasian women. Mm-hmm. So the authors hypothesize that the reason uh, lactation prevents t- type 2 diabetes um, may actually include better preservation of the pancreatic beta cells. Um, and that there's some evidence in mice that prolactin proliferates, the pan- meaning that it um, helps to grow the pancreatic uh, beta cells, which make insulin. Um, so, And also there's some um, question about how prolactin may play a role in fat storage, but there's not as much known about that. But it's interesting to actually think that prolactin may boost up the um, behavior or the strength or number, whatever it is, of, pan- of pancreatic cells to actually help the pancreas make insulin, which I think is phenomenal. So This may, this may be my favorite study that we've ever podcasted on. This oh, is- <laughs> wow. Wow, I could high marks. super cool. Yeah, it's really I mean, cool. Yeah. Between that and the studies that have come out in the last couple of years that show the um, role of insulin in milk production. I mean, I think there's just a lot more of this story, the interplay between insulin and prolactin and diabetes and breastfeeding that will come out if we keep studying it. Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting. You know, that's uh, uh, Namsen Rivers' work um, regarding um, type 2 diabetes and um, insufficient lactation. Mm -hmm. I have to say that of my type 1 diabetics, I find that they make oodles and oodles of milk. Do you ever notice that? The type 1s make a lot of milk? Hmm. You know, I probably haven't had enough to appreciate it. Yeah. But the, the couple that I've had have done great. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Dr. Namson Rivers about that, and um, she was saying that people with um, type 2, di- people who are prone to type 2 and gestational diabetes that they have less free insulin, um, even though they have higher, they have high insulin levels, it's not as free 
like let's add as unprotein it's bound. It's more bound up by protein. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Yeah. And so, um, because I, because when she said, you know, insulin helps to make milk, I thought to myself, well, gosh, you know, all these women who are insulin resistant have really high insulin levels. But she said, well, it's different because it's bound insulin. It's not free. Whereas people who are insulin deficient, like type one diabetics, they take insulin, they have more free insulin. Um, and from my experience, I, I find that, that, um, it's a, that it's sometimes a problem for our type 1 diabetics because, you know, they're prone to infection and they have lots and lots of milk. And so when their nipples don't heal, you know, if they are, have an overactive letdown and then their nipples get sore because of pinching, um, it takes a lot longer for them to heal. I wonder um, if they also have higher risk for mastitis. Yeah, I've seen some mastitis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen some, um, but not, um, but really more that they make a lot of milk. So yeah, it's, yeah, we have a lot to learn about insulin and uh, and then prolactin affecting the pancreas. That's super exciting to know more about. So yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. All right. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's great talking to you. So that was a short podcast uh, that'll help uh, uh, take care of the fact that our last podcast was so long. So. <laughs> All right. Take care, Karen. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.